Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Amanda Teresa Stavick was born on April 16, 1971 in Bellingham, Washington and went by Mandy. In 1975, when Mandy was about four years old, her brother Brent was shot and killed in Anchorage. To this day, his murder remains unsolved. Mandy's family later moved to Acme, Washington, where she attended Mount Baker High School. Mandy was at the top of her class, a cheerleader and a basketball player, and dreamed of becoming an airline pilot one day. In 1989, after graduating high school, 18-year-old Mandy enrolled at Central Washington University. That November, she returned to Acme to spend Thanksgiving with her family. On Friday, November 27, 1989, the day after Thanksgiving, Mandy went for a jog with her German Shepherd dog, Kyra, on her usual route. Normally, her mother, Mary, would bike alongside her, but that day, she decided not to go, and Mandy left the house around 2.30 p.m. Her route was along the street where their house was on the dead end, Strand Road, and then she would run to the Nooksack River and then back. A delivery man by the name of David Craker saw Mandy run past his van on Strand Road. She had already reached the end of her jog and was heading back toward her parents' home. Mandy's brother, Lee, was at a friend's house on Strand Road, and he also saw Mandy run past on her way back. After this, she was never seen alive again. Her family became worried when Kyra showed up on the doorstep without Mandy. They notified the police, and a search began. Two days after she disappeared, a search and rescue team found a pair of green sweatpants on the side of the road. Mary was brought in and identified the sweatpants as belonging to her daughter. Then, Detective Ron Peterson was checking the Nooksack River and discovered Mandy's body. She had been sexually assaulted and murdered and was found only wearing her pink running shoes. Investigators believe the suspect most likely pulled up in a vehicle beside Mandy and pointed a gun at her. After the sexual assault, they believe she tried to escape due to the scratches on her arms and legs, which looked like they came from blackberry bushes. They believe the suspect caught up with her, hit her over the head, and then threw her body into the river, where she ultimately drowned. David Craker, the delivery driver, told investigators that he saw a truck close behind Mandy. He said there were two 30-year-olds inside the truck. Another man was seen near where she went missing, and police were able to generate a sketch of him. An early suspect was the man Mandy had been dating on and off again for the last three years named Rick Zander. However, since they had DNA from the suspect recovered from Mandy's remains, he was quickly ruled out along with 30 other local men who voluntarily provided their DNA. Unfortunately, with leads and tips drying up, the case would go cold and remain that way for the next 25 years. 
Then, in June 2013, the case would break wide open after an innocent conversation between two women. Heather Backstrom and Mary Lee Anderson, two mothers who had grown up in Acme, were at a water park with their children. The two women barely knew each other, but they ended up striking up a conversation. They got on the topic of Mandy's death, which was still well known in the small town, when all of a sudden, Heather tells Mary Lee that she knows who the killer is. Shockingly, Mary Lee responds that she also knows who murdered Mandy. They were both accusing the same man, Timothy Bass, who attended Mount Baker High School with Heather, Mary Lee, and even Mandy. While the two women didn't know each other, they both had strange encounters with Tim. According to Heather, when she was 15 and Tim was 22, she sat next to him in a friend's truck after a softball game heading to Dairy Queen. Tim began aggressively flirting with her, making her very uncomfortable. After the incident, she made a point to stay away from him. As for Mary Lee, she recalled that one night in 1991 when Tim, a friend of her husband, came over under the guise of needing to use the telephone while her husband wasn't home. But when he dialed the number, Mary Lee could hear the sound of a disconnected number. Tim then found Mary Lee in her bedroom and declared his love for her before asking her to have sex with him. Panicked, Mary Lee ordered him to leave, which he did only after she threatened to call the police. The two women had kept these stories from the police for all these years, but now, together, they knew it was time. By this point, Tim was married with three kids. Despite living less than five minutes from Mandy at the time of the murder, he claimed to have barely known her and refused to give investigators his DNA. Now that investigators had the women's stories, they reached out to Tim's boss, Kim Wagner, for help in obtaining his DNA. She watched Tim closely and waited for him to discard a cup or even a can. Eventually, her efforts would pay off because three months later, she was able to obtain a plastic cup and a Coke can that Tim had used. The DNA results matched the DNA found on Mandy's body. How did that come about, my DNA? You guys got. I ran a sample. I don't remember giving DNA. You just tell me. If you just did it, sneaked, you did I, something well, weird. Well, of course I did. Okay. Well, that's all you need to tell me. But the but, point being is, I, if I didn't have something of that right, nature, right. you wouldn't be sitting here. Right. He was never a suspect, and six weeks after Mandy's murder, Tim married Gina Malone and moved out of the area. Even though he lived a few minutes from Mandy, he was never considered a suspect because investigators believed he came from a good family. When police tracked him down, he was living 20 minutes away in Everson, Washington, and was still married to Gina. On December 12, 2017, 28 years after Mandy's body was found, Tim was arrested for her murder. When faced with the DNA evidence, pathetic Tim magically claimed that he and Mandy had been secret lovers around the time that she was murdered, and that's why his DNA was found on her. I've been told not, not to say stuff, and uh, hell with it. I, I, I can't do this. I can't. Uh, I trust you guys. I'm just. I can't. This bites me in the ass, or if this is not what I'm supposed to do, then whatever. I don't. Okay. Um, I slept with her. How long did it go on? Uh, I met her, I think I was with my dad. We were mountain bike riding up and down the road. And he talked to her. He had a way with people. He just talked to her. 
and I talked to her, and then uh, after that, I'd mountain bike up and down the road, and she'd jog, so, and then we'd talk and stuff, so. But uh, I think that was in the spring, so it wasn't that long a relationship, because she went away and to college, I want to say, East, Eastern or Central? Central. Central? Did you have any correspondence with her? Do you have letters or did you make know. phone calls to her? No, she just said when she come back she'd see me. It was more of a friendship type thing. We just talked and and uh, then it just kind of grew into uh, more, more of a physical thing and we didn't even really do it that much. So it was more kissing and stuff. At trial, Tim's brother Tom testified that Tim had asked him to say he had a sexual relationship with Mandy, but Tom refused. Tom claimed that when Tim's girlfriend ended their relationship when he was in high school, Tim changed. He said Tim had a pistol in his bedroom that night and fired it into the air, and since that day, he despised women. He also asked his mother to say that his father, who was dead, had murdered Mandy. Tim's lawyers stuck with the secret relationship defense, but the jury wasn't buying it and convicted this loser to 27 years in prison. The reason he didn't get life was because he was not charged with premeditated murder. As of August 2023, the murder of her brother Brent remains unsolved. Joseph Damari, who went by Joe, grew up in Boston, where he and his younger brothers began selling produce from push carts. The business would take off, growing into a successful company both domestically and internationally. Later in life, after losing his wife to cancer, Joe remarried a younger woman named Frances Damari, and she became the stepmother to his four children. At the age of 53, Joe lived on Keystone Island in Miami, Florida, and was still running his successful food processing business. In March of 1961, Joe traveled to visit family in Boston. It's there, he told them, his plan to file for divorce from Francis. One week later, around 7.15 p.m. on March 24, 1961, he and Francis were on their way to Mike Gordon's restaurant when a strange series of events would occur. Suddenly, a gas station attendant at Sam's Causeway 66 noticed a woman running barefoot toward him. When she got close enough, she asked for help and said she had pulled up to the Causeway-Bayshore intersection and two armed men had hopped into the back seat. She said Joe asked them what they wanted and they replied money. She said that after forcing her to drive into a vacant lot at gunpoint, one man smashed Joe's face and then pistol-whipped her until she blacked out. When she regained consciousness, she claimed her husband was dead. When the police arrived, they found Joe shot to death in the passenger seat of his Cadillac Fleetwood sedan. The car was located nearby San Sauchi Estates in an undeveloped residential area adjacent to the Keystone Islands in North Miami. Investigators doubted Francis' story, especially since Joe's gold ring and diamond cufflinks were not taken. However, Francis claimed instead that the killers took $5,000 worth of jewelry and called her husband Frank instead of Joe. However, two men fishing about 200 yards east of where the car was found said they heard nothing, not even gunshots. Unfortunately, with investigators having no hard evidence against Francis, 
and having no other suspects, the case would go unsolved for 62 years. At one point, investigators were looking into the possibility that a Massachusetts gangster had murdered Joe, but this theory never panned out. Joe's son, Richard Damari, 21 at the time of his father's death, first suspected Frances of the murder on the day of the funeral. Despite her story, his stepmother appeared entirely unharmed. He recalled that on the day of his father's funeral, Frances was having her hair done at home, and Richard stood over her and looked at her face and noticed there were no injuries whatsoever. He even told the police his suspicions about Frances. Still, they denied the possibility despite finding no scrapings on Frances' feet, even though she claimed to have run barefoot through some bushes. Also, her shoes were neatly placed next to the couple's car. They also questioned the person she encountered, the gas station attendant, Norman Logan, who told investigators that she never once mentioned that her husband was shot. Right after the funeral, Richard said his stepmother gave him and his three siblings, including his nine-year-old sister, 24 hours to vacate the family's home. It was suspected that Joe informed Francis of his intentions that day or the night before he was murdered. He had created a new version of his will that stipulated that Francis, who was living on and off again in Ohio, had to live in their shared Florida home in order to collect her inheritance. It's theorized that she was concerned she wouldn't receive the money if she chose not to live in the home. After Joe's death, she inherited $250,000, which was about a third of his estate. She then went on to marry her probate lawyer. In 2015, Richard asked Paul Novak, a South Florida attorney who was known for sleuthing cold cases, to investigate his father's murder. This led to Francis finally being investigated. However, Francis had died in 2006 at the age of 82. Detectives then determined that Joe had actually been shot in the couple's garage before they left for dinner that night. They even found a trail of blood leading from the couple's home to the empty lot where the car was found. The gun was never found, but detectives believe she tossed it over a bridge they had to drive over that night. However, Richard had something that would break the case wide open. Back in 1961, Richard had used a gun that Joe had purchased for Francis months before his father's death. He shot it into the pool and recovered the casing and kept it for all these years. The firearm unit was then able to match that casing to the two casings recovered from the Cadillac in 1961. A box of ammunition of the same brand and caliber was found right after the murder in the glove compartment of Francis's other car, a Cadillac convertible. This proved that all three casings came from the same gun, a 25 caliber SADA, and gave them the smoking gun they were finally looking for. Francis was never fully investigated at the time because an unnamed, high-ranking government official began pushing police to leave her alone, claiming she was merely a victim. It took Richard 60 years to get justice for his father, even enduring harsh criticism from the police for being so persistent over the years. Lisa Marie Gray was born in Dorsey, Mississippi on July 11, 1983. Her mother, Wanda Ferris, said her daughter always had a smile on her face and was very happy-go-lucky. 
At the age of 16, Lisa had just finished her junior year at Itawamba Agricultural High School, and her goal after graduation was to become an elementary school teacher. On the night of June 22, 2000, just before 11 p.m., Lisa left her job as a waitress at Comer's Restaurant owned by her uncle. Unfortunately, she experienced a flat tire during her short drive home and became stranded on a dark, rural road. After failing to arrive home, her mother became worried and called Comer's Restaurant to see if anyone had seen her. One of the cooks informed her that he had seen a car on the side of the road with its flashers on during his drive to work. After searching the road, they found Lisa's car with her purse and cell phone still inside and its hazard lights flashing, but there was no sign of Lisa. Investigators began interviewing co-workers and patrons at the restaurant. One patron stood out to them by the name of Thomas Edwin Eddie Loden Jr., he had been at the restaurant twice on the day Lisa vanished. According to witnesses, 35-year-old Eddie had made a couple of passes at Lisa, but she had rejected his advances. After learning about Eddie's weird behavior that day, investigators went to his grandmother's home and asked her to search it, to which she agreed. Eddie had a room in the home and would stay there on occasion. Upon searching the room, they found a pair of shorts with blood on them, and they found some rope in his grandmother's car. The police then obtained a search warrant to seize a green van owned by Eddie. However, they initially couldn't find Eddie. Less than 24 hours after Lisa vanished, Eddie was found on the side of the road with the words, I'm sorry, carved into his chest. He was still alive, but had cuts on his wrist and was rushed to the Mississippi State Hospital. Sadly, upon searching Eddie's van, Lisa's nude body was found inside under the back seat. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. Investigators also found a video camera, and upon viewing the tape, they saw Eddie torturing, sexually assaulting, and strangling Lisa. The last clip on the video is of her dead body, which shows Eddie still violating her. The attack lasted four hours, and you can even hear him taunt Lisa about her virginity. After being released from the hospital, he was taken into custody, and the police searched his grandmother's house, where they discovered a freshly dug grave in the forest with a shovel nearby. His wife visited him while he was in custody, and after this visit, he decided to confess to the sexual assault, although he initially denied killing Lisa. He claimed he was trying to do a good deed until Lisa told him she had no interest in joining the Marines, which enraged him. Eddie was then arrested and pleaded guilty. He was a former Marine gunnery sergeant and Marine Corps recruiter. He was a husband and a father to a two-year-old and never had a criminal record. He said he arrived at the scene at approximately 10.45 p.m., pulled her into his van, and drove to his mother's house. He told investigators that he spent four hours sexually battering her before strangling her to death. I think it's safe to say that the chances of this being his first attack on another person are slim to none, especially with those psycho eyes of his. Interestingly, Lisa's tire on her car had been pierced that night at the restaurant, which ultimately led to the flat tire. Investigators believe Eddie had an unhealthy fascination with her and planned out the attack because she rejected his advances. The pierced tire was part of that plan and was meant to get her alone on the side of the road, which it did. 
After 21 years on death row, Eddie was executed by lethal injection at Mississippi State Penitentiary at Parchman, with Lisa's mother witnessing the execution. At the age of 89, Lillian DeClos lived alone as a retired nurse and teacher in Papano Beach, Florida. On April 29, 1994, Lillian's niece, June Nicholas, who frequently helped care for her aunt, arrived at the home to find a horrifying scene. Inside, the house was ransacked and lying on the floor was Lillian's body. She had been sexually assaulted before being murdered and had suffered numerous contusions and fractures to her nose and ribs. Sadly, with little to no leads, the case would go unsolved for the next three decades. In 2004, the Broward Sheriff's Office obtained jurisdiction over Papano Beach, giving them access to Lillian's case. The case was then looked at again, and her nightgown was sent off for DNA testing, and a male profile was found. The DNA was run through CODIS, but there were no matches. In 2019, authorities reopened her case again and began reviewing old case files. In 2021, Broward County reached out to Florida authorities and asked them to do a familial DNA search on its state DNA database. The database produced the name of a relative who had spent time in a Florida prison. From this, they determined that the relative was the son of the suspect, Johnny Mac Brown. Brown lived just around the corner from Lillian in the 1990s and was a former Marine and Vietnam War veteran. His family told detectives he struggled with PTSD and drug addiction and had been homeless for several years. In 2010, he died of natural causes. In August of 2022, with a court order, Brown's body was exhumed for DNA collection. The DNA was an exact match to the DNA found on Lillian's remains, officially solving the case 28 years later. In February 2014, the Monterey Police Department in California responded to the death of a woman in her car, who was identified by her driver's license as 58-year-old Francesca Linda Jacobs. Francesca had died from starvation, and at the time, authorities didn't suspect foul play. However, inside her nearly empty apartment, they found something bizarre and shocking the decomposed remains of another person inside a box under the kitchen table. More specifically, the body was mummified, wrapped in plastic, placed in a wooden crate, covered in even more plastic, and placed inside a cardboard box. Unfortunately, they were unable to determine the person's cause of death. Upon further searching the apartment, they found a handwritten poem that was titled Safely Home, referring to the writer in heaven, indicating that the woman had been preparing for her death. Another handwritten document, the last will and testament of Francesca Linda Jacobs, showed that her possessions should be given to her landlord in lieu of rent. It also specified that the remains in the cardboard box belonged to her mother, Florence Ida Jacobs. She asked that her mother's remains be cremated and buried alongside her in a cemetery north of Los Angeles. The investigation soon became known as the Mom in the Box case. Neighbors characterized Francesca as intensely private and a little strange. 
Neither her neighbors nor her landlord had stepped foot in the apartment since she moved in 12 years earlier, and they definitely had no clue that a body was being stored in the kitchen. It wasn't long before investigators were noticing some oddities in the case, such as Francesca appearing older than the age on her driver's license. Also, records about her life only began in the 1990s, and almost no records could be located for her mother, Florence. In late 2022, genetic samples from both women were sent to the private Othram lab in Texas, and the results would surprise investigators. The results showed that Francesca was actually Linda Ray Jacobs, born in 1942, not 1955. Also, the woman in the box was indeed her mother, Ida Florence Jacobs. From this, they were able to track down an ex-husband who said the mother and daughter had a very strange and unusual bond. While investigators don't believe foul play is involved in either death, they are still unsure why Florence was left in a box in the kitchen or why Francesca assumed a new name. I know this isn't exactly a true crime case, but I still found it interesting enough to share. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.